following Jesus' interactions with Levi, he goes over for a dinner party. Levi has made the decision to follow Christ, brings Jesus home with him. And what we see there is we see that a party ensues, that Matthew, Levi, invites all of his other friends, these other tax collectors, these other sinners, to come and to encounter Jesus. And it's an awesome scene. Because in addition to Levi converting, we're told that most of his friends also make the similar decision to forsake all and to follow Jesus. But there were party crashers. We see that there were two groups of party crashers, the scribes and the Pharisees. And you should note that these religious leaders, really beginning from this point forward, would have beef with Jesus. Now, our first question that we looked at last Sunday was what beef did these religious leaders have with Jesus? And the answer is twofold. First, their beef began in the reality that Jesus ate and drank, as we're told, with tax collectors and sinners. Not only would Jesus hang out with questionable characters, but Jesus would choose to identify himself with these questionable characters, and they had a big problem with this. Their second beef is that Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners instead of them. There was an element to this where they were jealous. These men simply couldn't understand why Jesus, this rabbi, would choose to fellowship and to eat with sinners when he could have very easily instead spent their time with them. Now, the issue that these religious leaders had was the reality that whether they simply didn't realize it or were simply too oblivious to it or they simply ignored it, the truth was that there was no moral distinction between themselves and the very sinners that they looked down upon and judged. They thought they were better than the people Jesus was eating with, which is why they wanted Jesus to eat with them. But the problem was is that they were not better, as do all religious people. The scribes and the Pharisees used the process of moral comparison to be their basis for what I like to call self-declared righteousness, or more commonly put, self-righteousness. In verses 18 through 22, we see these religious leaders' self-righteousness rooted in the fact that they were doing something for God, which the topic at hand is fasting, that the disciples weren't doing. Mark chapter 2, verse 18, we read that they came and they said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. These religious leaders viewed their ritual fasting for God as evidence that they were more righteous than anyone who didn't fast in the same manner, aka Jesus' disciples. We're doing something for God that they aren't doing. This was their motto, which implied, I guess from their vantage point anyway, that God would be more pleased with them than he was with the very disciples of Jesus, the irony. Now, the problem with their logic was twofold. First, if you're doing more for God than what's required by God, 
are you actually more righteous for it? Let me repeat that question because it's, it's, it's so important. If you're doing more for God than what's actually required by God, are you more righteous for it? Don't forget, God had only asked the Jews to fast one day a year, and that being on the Day of Atonement. The exercise of fasting twice a week, which is what the Pharisees and the scribes did, it was something that these leaders had conjured up on their own. It was tradition. It wasn't what God had asked. The second problem with their logic is that they didn't actually fully grasp or understand what pleases God in the first place. Do you realize that the only thing that actually pleases God, the only thing that you can do this morning, the only thing you can do to please God is following his son, Jesus. That's the only thing you can do. Follow Jesus. And this was a lifestyle that the disciples had adopted, including Levi. They had made the choice to respond to Jesus's invitation, to forsake all, and to follow Jesus. They were following Jesus, and that act in and of itself gave them all of the pleasing and the rights before God that you could have ever asked for. The irony, though, is that this was a truth, a fact, that the religious leaders had completely overlooked. Simply put, these religious leaders, they had their entire perspective backwards. The disciples were actually more pleasing to God in this situation because they were hanging out with Jesus. These tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners were actually more pleasing to God than the scribes and Pharisees for one reason. They were hanging out with Jesus. The most important thing that you can do the one thing God finds to be most pleasing to him is to see you and I hang out with Jesus. Now, in order to nail down this point, Jesus uses three word pictures to illustrate this reality. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth onto an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And likewise, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the old skin, and the wine is spilled." and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now, the first word picture that Jesus uses here is that of the wedding feast. The idea of the wedding feast would have struck a chord within the hearts of these religious leaders. You see, all Old Testament Jewish scholars would have seen the comparison Jesus was making. They all saw, according to the Old Testament, Jehovah, God, as the groom, and Israel as the bride. The idea of a wedding feast was not a new imagery or a new image when it came to Scripture, when it came to uh, Judaism. It was an illustration Jesus is conjuring up that they would have clearly understood. Now, by conjuring up this image, Jesus was saying... He was saying that the groom, pointing to himself, the groom has arrived, 
for the bride looking at Israel. We're currently at a wedding celebration. And at a celebration, Jesus is saying, when you're, when you're feasting, when it's joyous, when it's a happy moment, no one fasts. I officiated a wedding yesterday. And it was a, a time of celebration. It was a time of, of, of eating and drinking and dancing and enjoying this wonderful uh, marriage union that had been started. Think of the downer it would have been for the bride's parents, for the groom's parents to come in and say, listen, this is an awesome time, but there's going to be no dancing and we're going to not eat anything. And we're just going to sit around and just kind of think and just not say anything. We're just going to chill out. Like, I'm out. Like, the Georgia game's on anyway, so I'm, 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 I'm bouncing already. You're at a wedding feast. And at a wedding feast, the appropriate response to the occasion is not fasting. This is Jesus' point, but rather joy. It's interesting that the Jewish Talmud, which was the oral traditional writings, religious writings, the Talmud stated that at a wedding ceremony, and only at a wedding ceremony, but at a wedding feast, a man was resolved of all religious duties except one. Now, this would even include prayer. He was excused from all religious duties at a wedding celebration, but one thing was required. It was required by law to rejoice. Now, this is what Jesus is getting at. These religious exercises, like within our context, fasting, that were used to approach God became meaningless when God was in your midst. See what I'm saying? Jesus is making it clear that his arrival this time was a time of rejoicing, not fasting. It was to be a time of relationship, not religion. In essence, religious right should have transformed into relational joy. Now, the second picture that Jesus paints for us is that of patching a garment. As any seamstress can tell you, it's a mistake to patch an old piece uh, onto an old piece of fabric using a fresh piece of cloth. You see, when the new piece of cloth shrinks, it'll tear the old piece of fabric, which won't shrink, creating an even greater hole than what you started with. You're trying to repair the piece of cloth, but in doing so and adding the new piece to the old, you're going to actually make everything worse because the tear will become greater. Jesus is saying to his audience, I'm not here to try to patch up the old system, Judaism, and its rules and its regulations and its traditions. Jesus is saying that I've come with the purpose with the intention to do something new, to do something fresh. I hope you realize that Jesus has and had no desire to patch up a broken system. Man spent millennia trying to earn God's favor through religion, religious exercises, but it never worked. It never solved the problem. As President Obama once said, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. 
This was what people were trying to do with their present condition with religion, the system. It was broken beyond repair. Jesus is saying that a patch, not only would it do no good to the problem, but it would actually make things much worse. The third picture is that of new wine being placed into an old wineskin. Now, because new wine has yet to fully ferment, if it is placed into an old skin that no longer has any elasticity, when the wine begins to expand, what will it do? Because the skin won't expand with the wine, it will tear and it will break. The inadequate skin and the wine will both be ruined and be lost. Jesus is using this image to say that he wasn't trying to reinvent the old religious system of Judaism, but instead came to start something new that would also require a new system as well. New wine demands new skin. Now, my first observation from these three-word pictures is that Jesus, Jesus transcends religion. All three illustrations are used to describe something new and something fresh. A wedding is a new covenant. A new patch needs a new garment. New wine needs a new skin. Religion was an old establishment, as old as time. And guess what? It provided nothing more than an inadequate system by which man would try, would attempt, even with good intention, to prove his faithfulness to God. But you see, religious systems of perfecting self, what did it do? Well, the Bible's pretty clear that these religious systems of perfecting self only left self condemned. It never perfected. You see, the problem is that religion, with religion, man could never prove himself faithful to God, could never do enough to remedy his problem and to earn God's righteousness. You see, through the law, it did a good job diagnosing the problem, but the law never provided a tangible way for man to deal with his problem. Put this way, the law provided a way for man to be religious, but never did it provide a way for man to be righteous. Any student of Jesus' life will realize that he did come to do something entirely different. Not only entirely different, mind you, from Judaism, but interestingly enough, Jesus came to do something entirely different from any other world religion that ever existed before this moment or would ever come after. That Jesus came to do something that would be in stark contrast to all religion. With religion, it was always about what man should do for God. But with Jesus... It was what God had come to do for man. With religion, it was always about man earning the favor of God. But with Jesus, it was about God bestowing his favor upon man. With religion, man had to offer sacrifices to atone for his sin. But with Jesus, God became the sacrifice to atone for sin. 
With religion, it was always about man working so hard to become, to make himself a better person. But with Jesus, it's allowing God's grace by faith to transform a man into that better person. Religion leaves a man condemned. Religion never saved. It only leads us to the need of a savior. But Jesus came to forgive man and to save man from his sins and to be the very savior that religion would point us to. My second observation. First, Jesus transcends religion. That's what we get from these three pictures. The second point, though, is that Jesus isn't a patch. I want you to think about this for a moment. Isn't it true that everyone initially comes to Jesus for the exact same reason we often seek out a plumber? I want you to chew on that mental concept for a moment. That everyone initially comes to Jesus for the same reason we often call out a plumber. There is an initial pressing need that can no longer be ignored. There's some kind of crisis that finally forces us to pick up the phone and to make the call. The problem becomes too large for me to fix on my own. The situation, you might just say, stinks so badly it demands immediate attention. And in this moment, I'm forced to call Jesus just like I'm forced to call a plumber. I need an expert. You know, when I call upon Jesus, it's often with the same expectations I have for the plumber. I'm looking for Jesus to address the specific problem I called about. I'm wanting Jesus to tighten up the faucet or fix the leaky drain pipe, maybe even unclog that toilet. But I'm not looking for him to rip out all of the piping and to start rebuilding the entire system from scratch. You see, when we come to Jesus, we're often looking for him or looking to him to fix a pressing problem that brought us before him in the first place. In essence, we come to Jesus looking for a patch. But you should realize that Jesus has no interest in being a patch. Jesus wants to do much, much, much more than this. You come to Christ in that initial crisis, looking for that initial uh, fix. And Jesus looks and is like, yes, I'm going to deal with that. But my work isn't going to stop right there. Because you don't realize there's a lot more wrong with you than what meets the eye. We come to Jesus because we need him to fix a problem. And Jesus is not so much interested in fixing the problem. He's actually interested in fixing you. All of it. You know, Jesus, that's the way he is. There are parts of our lives that sometimes we don't think need the refiner's fire. But Jesus sees something different, doesn't he? Jesus doesn't want to fix one part of your life. Jesus wants to transform every aspect of your life. Jesus is not simply a patch. The scribes and the Pharisees, their self-declared righteousness began with the false conclusion 
that they were doing something for God, something that God found pleasing that the disciples weren't doing, this be fasting. But in the remaining verses of chapter 2, we'll see that their self-righteous attitude continue one step further, one step beyond this, and the fact that they were not doing something for God, something that God found displeasing, that the disciples were actually doing. Verse 23, now it happened. That Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why do they do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, our scene of activity, Jesus is making his way from one town to another. We don't know what town Jesus was departing from or headed to, but he's traveling. And his route takes him through a field of grain. The day is Saturday, making it the Sabbath. The time is presumably lunch because the disciples' tummies begin to growl and they grab some grain and begin to eat. Now, the accusation. The Pharisees' accusation was very, well, let's just say to the point. The disciples were breaking the law by plucking and eating grain on the Sabbath day. This was their accusation. Jesus, are you not going to do something about these followers of yours? Look at what they're doing. It's the Sabbath. It's Saturday. It's a holy day. And they're working. They're doing something forbidden by God. You see, the Pharisees saw picking the grain stock itself as harvesting and then rubbing the stock together and then allowing the chaff to be removed to expose the grain, which was the snack, that was considered threshing. So harvesting and threshing were taking place according to the Pharisees and their activity. And according to the Pharisees, for this simple midday snack, they were in violation of at least two laws that would have required of them at least three sacrifices to atone for their actions. Harvesting and threshing on the Sabbath day was a no-no. Now please note that the act of taking the grain that didn't belong to them. I mean, it wasn't as though Peter owned the field or Jesus owned the field. They're making their way through. And it might be easy for us to look at the story and say, well, wait a second, didn't they miss the whole obvious point that they're stealing food, right? It's not their field. You should understand that the Pharisees don't bring this up as an accusation because it wasn't an accusation. They were not in violation of the law because the law had all kinds of stipulations for how you harvested a field. According to the law, when you harvested a field, it was very particular in the sense that you were supposed to leave part of your field unharvested and that there were only so many times you could come through and collect the grain. You were supposed to be leaving remnants behind. And it would be these remnants or some of the areas of the field that you didn't harvested that would be reserved for the poor, that the poor could come out and it was kind of a welfare setup. You could come out if you were determined, you wanted to work, you could uh, get what you needed for the day and thus you could survive. In addition to that, sojourners, people that were like Jesus making their way through, if they were passing a field, it was completely within the law for them to grab enough for a snack. 
Now, it's not as though that they can, you know, be pulling a wagon behind and taking whatever's left, throwing it on, and that'd be good. No, that would be in violation. So they're not breaking the law in that sense, but to the Pharisees, harvesting, threshing. Oh, this just bent them all out of whack. Now, here's the problem with their accusation. Specifically, two problems. First, the disciples' actions here weren't actually in violation of the law. And according to the law of Moses, what they were doing, even on the Sabbath day, was not breaking the law. But what was it in violation of? It was in violation instead of Jewish traditional or oral law. Their actions were okay when it came to the written law, but were forbidden when it came to the oral law. Now, one of the negative byproducts that emerged within the Jewish religious culture following the Babylonian captivity, the Jews had been disobedient, God had given them multiple warnings, the Babylonians come in, judge them, pull them out of the land for 70 years before they're allowed to come back. Now, one of the things that happened as a result of this, this captivity and them returning, them being punished for being disobedient was excessive moralism. This is one of the byproducts. The Jews were so concerned with obeying the law of God. They didn't want to be found in disobedience. They didn't want to be cast into exile again. They wanted to learn from their mistakes. They were so concerned with obeying the law of God so that they wouldn't be punished for it that they decided that it would just be best. It would be wise. It would be prudent for them to go overboard, to go above and beyond what the law would require just to be on the safe side. And this is how we get these oral traditions the Mishnah and the Talmud, they were combined in a collective 28 volumes, like the Encyclopedia Britannica, if those even exist. I know my grandfather has one from like the 70s. And anytime I talk to my grandfather about anything like scientific, he pulls out like the Britannica. And he's like, no, you're wrong. This is what's going on. The earth is flat. And I'm like, no, granddaddy. Like, we've proven that that's outdated. Like, seriously. You know how that goes. But it's a huge volume. 28 volumes compiled the Mishnah and the the oral traditions. And it was developed. It was developed by the religious leaders following the Babylonian captivity to explain and to define the vague details, or what they interpreted as vague details, of the written law. Now, a great example of this is the Sabbath day. God said, keep the Sabbath day holy. God didn't really elaborate too much on it. Enjoy the day. Keep it holy. Now, they concluded that God wanted the people to take a day off of work, to rest, to reflect, to worship. And in order to make sure that no one even accidentally would violate this law of God, the law of the Sabbath, these religious leaders wanted to define the particulars. In regards to just the Sabbath day, there were 39 specific rules about what constituted work on the Sabbath. And you could violate each of these 39 rules different rules, and 39 
different ways. Can you imagine how complicated and complex reading 39 different ways you could violate the Sabbath, 39 different ways each? That's unbelievable. You see, what the Pharisees, though, failed to see is that transgressing religious man-made traditions was not the same thing as transgressing God's law. That was one of the flaws here. The disciples, yes, they had violated what man had placed upon God's commandments, but they were not guilty of violating God's commandments. I asked this question earlier. If you're doing more for God than what's required by God, are you more righteous for it? We should now consider this question. If you're not doing something for God, when God didn't ask you not to do it, are you more righteous for that? You see, when it came to their self-righteousness, it began, it started, it was birthed with the things that they did for God that other people weren't doing, fasting. But then it continued to the things that they didn't do for God, things God had never asked them not to do, things like the particulars of Sabbath traditions. Now, the second flaw with their logic is that it's clear under this, this logical model that their traditions had missed God's intentions. And to illustrate this point, Jesus reminds them of an Old Testament story. Verse 24, but he said to them, have you never read, and, and please understand there's some sarcasm there. I read one commentator that said that, that, that the phrasing of that word, like, have you never heard, was something that the Pharisees would often use in kind of like a very snarky, kind of like we're more educated, we're smarter than you. Like when they were talking down to the people, trying to prove their argument, that would be like, have you never heard or read? Jesus is kind of throwing it back in their face. He's kind of saying, hey, have you never read? Have you never thought about David? What he did when he was in need, when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how David went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and how David ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And David also took it and gave it to those who were with him. Now this story, David, by this point, has been anointed to be the next king of Israel by Samuel. The problem was that Saul was the current king over Israel and didn't exactly like the idea of a rival. Thus, David's on the run. He's running from his life. After a few spears thrown his direction, David's like, peace, I'm out, and he bounces. Now, as he's running, as he's making his way from cave to cave, from hideout to hideout, he and his men are hungry to the point of almost starvation. They're in the need of food. And where do they happen to come across? The tabernacle, the place of worship. Now, instead of starving, David has to make a choice, and he chooses to eat the showbread, which was reserved only for the priests. Now, understand, concerning this story, that no one, not even these religious Pharisees, 
who had placed David, who had exalted David upon this pedestal, not even them saw David's actions in this story as a bad thing. Sure, they would argue, David might have been breaking the law, but, I mean, God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. God didn't judge him, so it was universally accepted as being okay. Now, here's the point Jesus is making. If God, follow me here, if God was okay with David breaking the law to satisfy a human need, why then was it wrong for his disciples to break man's traditions to satisfy their own hunger? The underlying accusation, the point Jesus is making here, is he's looking at these Pharisees and he's saying, wait a second, how is your behavior so righteous when it's not even godly? God didn't have a problem with David breaking the law when it satisfied a human need, but you get all bent out of shape when my disciples satisfy their hunger by breaking your traditions when are less than the law? And you claim to represent God. You claim to be so righteous. You claim to be holy. Hypocrites. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' logic. First, human need always, always has precedent over religious rituals. And you can throw in tradition. When it was all said and done, in God's eyes, David's actions were permissible. They were okay. Why? Because his human need for food to survive trumped the particulars of the law in that instance. That the law wasn't to be a rule of thumb. It wasn't to be blanketed. That there could be room for application. In context, it's sad to say that the Pharisees they were not okay with the disciples' behavior for one reason. They were not okay with it because their traditions, their rituals, had so muddied the waters of what the law was really about that they had lost sight of God's original intentions. They had become so focused on obeying the law that they had forgotten while they, why they were supposed to obey the law in the first place. Human need always has precedent over religious rituals. Secondly, God created the Sabbath for man, not to be a burden on man. For man, not on man. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting to note that the first Sabbath, the very first Sabbath, we don't find in the law, we don't find it in the stories of the patriarchs. We find it 
on the seventh day of God's creation. It was the day that God ceased from the creation process and presumably reflected on his creation. However, according to what Jesus says here, the Sabbath was not made for God. Now, the implications here, even for myself and my own study, are are kind of radical. Because we often, we have a misconception that the Sabbath was all about not working. That God and working for six days and taking the seventh day off was setting this precedent. He was establishing this principle that we should not work one day out of the week and we should rest, that we need to re-energize, to refuel, to regain our perspective. That it was about not working because God established a precedent. Now, don't get me wrong. I think God was establishing a healthy principle, but he wasn't establishing a religious precedent. The Sabbath was not made for God. It was made for man. You see, though the Sabbath day was the final day of creation, the day that God rested, this is what blows my mind, and I had never really considered before. But the Sabbath was man's first full day of living. God created the Sabbath specifically for man And could you really build the argument that it was for rest? I mean, what had Adam done? Nothing. He had laid there as a pile of dust. God breathed life and boom, he woke up. And then his first day of living is a day off. How awesome is that? Like the first day is just to kick back, relax, watch the game and hang out with God. Now, now this is what, this is what's interesting God created the Sabbath day specifically for man. Jesus is clear. And so we can't build the argument that it was for rest, but rather a day reserved in fellowship and communion with God. That the first day was the day God rested, but was the day man hung out with God. You know, in Western culture, we see Saturday as the end of our week you know, Saturday. And so we've interpreted the Jewish Sabbath in this context and with this reflection. However, to the Jews of Jesus's day, please understand, Saturday, Saturday was not viewed as the end of the week, but was rather viewed instead as the beginning of the week. You know, when you start to study how the Jews dealt with even time, it's different than us, like how they started and stopped a day. In Genesis, we're told that evening and morning were the first day. And so for the Jews, their day starts at 6 p.m. and not actually like at 12 a.m. in the middle, that it starts at 6 p.m. Evening, as soon as they considered it was evening. And the Talmud said, as soon as you could see like three stars in the night sky, it was officially evening. Evening and morning, the first day, they, they, they saw things differently. The way that they viewed the week is that they viewed not Sunday as being the beginning of the week, but rather Saturday. It was the beginning of the week. It was man's first day. And so, like we Westerners view Sunday, the Jews viewed Saturday as a day of worship. It's the right way to start the week. It's kind of how they saw it. Note, 
The Sabbath was made for man. God created man, not for work. What was his purpose? It was for fellowship with God. Now, sure, God wants man to work, but in second to fellowshipping with God. The traditions of the Sabbath, interestingly, completely distorted God's purpose behind the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't created for God to cease from work, but instead was created for man to spend with God. Keep that in mind, because this leads us to our third point. If, If the purpose of the Sabbath wasn't ceasing from work, but rather spending time with God, then the purpose of Sabbath was being fulfilled by the disciples. Why? Because who were they hanging out with? Jesus. They were fellowshipping. They were hanging out. They were spending time with Jesus. And Jesus is like, you're going to get onto them about eating grain? That has nothing to do with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is all about hanging out with me. That's what Jesus is saying, to which they're doing it, and you're not. So who's really in violation here? Do you see what Jesus' point? As the Son of Man, because he says the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. As the Son of Man, Jesus was using a term to identify himself as the ultimate man, the second Adam. As Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus was identifying himself as God or the originator, the purpose, the master of the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, me, is also Lord of the Sabbath. I started the thing, folks. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the creator of the Sabbath day. And so his point, he's making it clear that he knew better than anybody else what God's intentions behind the Sabbath day was. Why? Because they were his intentions. Now, in conclusion, tying up, I think an important section of scripture. The scribes and the Pharisees, their self-declared righteousness began with the false conclusion they were doing something for God, something God found pleasing that the disciples weren't doing. Though they viewed their works, things like fasting for God as the basis of their righteousness, Jesus made it clear that it's only a relationship with God, something the disciples and these tax collectors and these sinners had that was the only true basis for righteousness. Your self-righteousness isn't rooted in reality. It doesn't even make you righteous. But then understand, their self-righteousness moved beyond what they were doing for God it became based upon the things they were not doing for God. They were going above and beyond in the name of God. When God never asked them to go above and beyond. Their religious traditions, like the Sabbath day, had created this basis for a zealous obedience to the law. An obedience, mind you, that they were good at but assumed, they assumed, increased their right standing before God. However, Jesus once again illustrates that it's only a relationship with God, something the disciples had that they didn't, that was the only basis 
for true righteousness. Maybe I can state it like this. As we saw with fasting, just because you do more for God than what's required by God doesn't mean you're more righteous for it. Nor does it make you better than those who don't do all the things that you do. Our righteousness is based completely upon a relationship with Jesus. So that's what we see with the Sabbath. I mean, the fasting. Now, the Sabbath. Just because you're going above and beyond the law for God, religious sacrifices God never asked of you, doesn't mean you're more righteous for it, nor does it make you better than those who don't share your same personal, non-biblical, traditional convictions. Our righteousness is based completely upon a relationship with Jesus. The whole concept here, right from the beginning, Jesus has come to save the lost. He's come to make righteous those who are unclean. To make righteous those who are unclean. The Pharisees' problem is that they didn't see themselves as being unclean, that they were already righteous. But how did they see? How did they reach the conclusion? What was their righteousness based in? It was based in the things that they were doing for God and the things that they were abstaining from for God. And Jesus addresses both of those following this whole scene by dealing with fasting, a work, and dealing with the Sabbath day tradition and religion. And in both instances, Jesus' conclusion and thus his exhortation for you and I this morning, it's very sound. First, our righteousness is not based in anything dealing with me, not the things I do for God or the things I don't do for God. My righteousness is only based in Jesus, my relationship with Jesus. Which means that it's very hard for me to be self-righteous. Because if I look around at my brothers and sisters in the Lord, if they have a relationship with Jesus, then they're just as righteous as I am, regardless of the particulars. Righteousness is a standing before God, of which we all have, which means that when I look around at the people that might do things differently than I do, that might have particular tendencies or habits that they enjoy that I might not, it's wrong for me to look at them in judgment, in self-righteousness, thinking that because I don't do that, I'm better for it. You're not. As a matter of fact, you're worse for it. Jesus, the only people that Jesus had beef with that he was constantly arguing with, that he was constantly wrestling with. The only people. It wasn't the brokenhearted. It wasn't the sick. It wasn't the loner. It wasn't the sinner. Jesus came to save the lost. The only people Jesus had a problem with were the self-righteous, legalistic religious do-gooders of the day because they were judgmental when they shouldn't be and their religion had created a false sense of rightness 
that would only do one thing, lead them straight to hell. You see, that's the danger of self-righteousness. It creates a false sense that I don't need a savior. Folks, I need Jesus not only for salvation, but I need Jesus every single day to live, to move, to represent him, Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus that matters to God. Some people ask, how do I know I have a relationship with Jesus? How do I know, Zach? How do you know? Well, it's a relationship that should have an influence. It's a relationship that should rub off. You know, the Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. What's interesting is that good company is actually very beneficial as well. That hanging out with Jesus, it, it, it does something. What does it do? It, it means that I become more reflectant of Jesus. It's interesting already to see my little son, who's but nine months old, look at me, and he spends time with me, and he's wanting to emulate me. And the more time that he spends with me, the more our relationship grows. Guess what happens? The more he's going to, as Willie Blade says, be little Zach. Right? A miniature version of me which is scary by all accounts. But guess what? If we're spending time with Jesus, if we're looking at him and watching him and speaking with him and trying to emulate him, well, how do you know if someone has a relationship with Jesus? Do they act like Jesus? Are they little Jesuses? You know, the word Christian is literally just that. It's little Christ. It's like the mini-me Jesus. A miniature version. It was kind of used as a derogatory term, kind of a slang term. Little Christ. But what a wonderful compliment. This morning, may I encourage you. Everything is built upon one thing. Not what you do for God, but what Jesus has done for you. And so follow him. Hang out with him. Know that your righteousness is based upon that reality. And in doing so, you don't have to worry about the other things. Because you'll slowly become more and more and more reflectant of the person you're hanging out with. How cool is that? So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.